The Christian singer Don Moen popularized words that have now become standard greetings in certain Christian circles. You may have heard these words, God is good all the time, all the time, God is good. This is a precious biblical truth. And while it is possible that the repetitional, ongoing repetition of these words might downplay and eventually lead to the undervaluing of the truth that is expressed in these words, we need to capture afresh the powerfulness and the preciousness of the truth of God's goodness. And really that is where we want to locate our deliberations this evening on the goodness of God. James says this in the first chapter of James, where he tells us in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. When James utters these words, he's speaking in the context of trials and temptation. And you remember that in the preceding verses, he says to his readers that those who endure trials are blessed. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to give those who love him, in verse 12. And then he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desire and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, has given birth, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. It is in this context of the question of temptation which leads to sin that James says that God is not to be blamed for human sin. God does not tempt anyone. God himself cannot be tempted by evil. But James goes on to say that if God does not send us temptation, well, he does send us something. And what he sends us is good. Wants to consider first the reality of God's goodness as outlined in verse 17. Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Clearly, James reveals that God is a source of everything good. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. 
When you look at the English translation, every good gift and every perfect gift, you might think that the, these two words are the same. But there are two Greek words, two different Greek words, behind these two words, gifts. And some will tell you that the first term behind our translation, gift, refers to the act of giving. So that every good act of giving, whereas the second term, gift, refers to the object that is given. So every good act of giving and every perfect gift that is given is from above. While there are two separate terms used for gifts, they are to be understood synonymously, that they are actually referring to the same thing. And so it is perfectly proper to translate every good and perfect gift is from above. Now notice that James uses two adjectives to describe the gift of God. He says every gift from above or comes from God is good. And there it means it is useful and it is beneficial. Every good gift, every useful and beneficial gift is from above. And then James says every good gift and every perfect gift. And perfect now is a second adjective. And the term teleos means that God's gift is complete. That it lacks nothing in terms of meeting the needs of the recipients. Every good and every perfect gift is from above. Or comes from above. James says it comes down from the Father of light. And the term comes down, katabino, is the present participle. And there is this idea that every good and every perfect gift streams from above, continually falls from above. There is this notion of the continual supplying, God lavishing a steady stream of beneficial and sufficient gifts from heaven on his children. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. What God gives then is totally good and totally adequate for his people to meet their needs. And the reason that God gives good gifts and perfect gifts, complete gifts, it is because God by nature is good. That God is infinitely and independently good, so that God is good of himself. That God's goodness is not a derivative goodness, a goodness that depends upon anything outside of himself. And that may be said of all of the attributes of God. God is infinitely and independently good. And as we are reminded, he's the author and the cause of all goodness in man. Scripture repeatedly reminds us that God is fundamentally good. That he does that which is pleasing. Notice it says in Psalm 119 verse 68, You are good and you do good. 
So not only is God good in nature, but he does good. In Psalm 34 verse 8, the psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. Again in Psalm 100 and verses 4 and 5, we are told, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his course with praise. Be thankful and bless his name. For the Lord is good and his mercy is everlasting and his truth endures to all generation. In Psalm 145, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies are over all his works. Now God's goodness reveals itself in creation. The abundance of blessings that you see, the variety of blessings that we have in creation, suggests that God is plentiful in his mercy. And by the way, let's just be clear that when we talk about the goodness of God, generally the goodness of God refers to, to other attributes, like his love, like his mercy, like his provisions. It is indeed a, 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 an umbrella term for God's love, for God's grace, for God's mercy. That God is essentially kind. God is good. That goodness then is revealed in creation. That God has given us a marvelous world in which to live. He's given us his goodness in his providence. That is, he upholds his creatures. He opens doors. He provides. His goodness, therefore, is seen not only in creation and providence, but in his provisions. And James says, every good and every perfect gift comes from the Father of light. His goodness, of course, then includes his shalom. That peace, that blessing that God brings to his people. It involves his deliverance from evil. It involves even the good harvest that he gives. The food, the clothing, the shelter, the health that he provides to his people. But when James says every good and perfect gift comes from above, it is quite likely that James is referring not merely to outward physical gifts, though those would be included, but perhaps in the context he's referring to spiritual good. So that every good gift or every perfect gift refer in this context to the spiritual gifts that God provides for his people. And the question then why, then you may ask is, why does one want to take such a reading of this verse? It is because the context in which James speaks about good gifts is one in which he is telling us what God does not give. And in a spiritual sense, God does not give temptations. So on one hand, God does not give the spiritual evil of temptation. But to balance it on the other hand, every good gift and every perfect gift come from above. And, and so to balance the fact that God does not give evil gifts like temptation, God gives spiritual gifts. All the spiritual blessings that we need. God provides and provides them amply to his people. 
A further reason why James may be speaking in verse 17 about spiritual gifts, although I argue that it is not to the exclusion of practical material possessions, it is because in verse 18 he's going to refer to a spiritual blessing that God gives. Now James says that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. And he then goes on to amplify the source. From above is meant to indicate the place or the locality or the source from which these good gifts come. And he amplifies what he means from above. He says, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Here, in the description the Father of lights, he tells us the source. We have seen the reality of God's goodness. That God is a source of goodness. That God is a father of light. Now this expression, that every good gift and every perfect gift come from above and comes from, from the father of light. The father of light depicts God as creator. He is a father of the heavenly bodies in the sense that he created the heavens and the earth. The sun, the moon, and the stars are God's creation. He is therefore the father of light, the one who, the one who produced, the one who created light and created the heavenly bodies. And so the psalmist tells us this of God. He says, to him who laid out the earth above the waters for his mercy endures forever. To him who made great lights for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule the day for his mercy endures forever. The sun and the, and the moon and the stars to rule by night for his mercy endures forever. In Psalm 136 verses 5 to 9. God is the father of light. It is he who created the heavenly bodies. And God's goodness is related not merely to his character, because God is intrinsically good, but God's goodness is related to his role as father. And there's a sense in which God is a father of creation, because all creation originates from God. But God is also the father of believers, of his children. And therefore they are to bless him. And James tells us in chapter 3 and verse 9, it says, With it, referring to the tongue, we bless our God and Father. So that God is a father of creation, of the heavenly lights, but he is the father of Christians. And James here in chapter 3 verse 9 He's arguing that we ought not to use our tongues to curse men and to bless our Heavenly Father. There's a sense in which all men may speak of God as Father if they mean Creator. But only the believer can speak of God as Father in terms of God's saving grace, God's redeeming work on their behalf. Now, goodness, then, comes from God, who is a father. And one writer, David, says that when James refers to God as father, it is to clarify for us that God is not a mere abstract force in the universe, but God is a personal being, the one who cares, the one who understands, the one who is a father of his people. 
in the first century or in the Greco-Roman world, the father was the first and the foremost person in the home. He was the authority of the home. God is a father because he's the authority of the church. But also the father was the one who gave the family its identity. What one did in one's family as a child or as a spouse reflected on the father in the home. If you behave properly in the public, that would elevate the ranking and the status of the father in the home. But conversely, if a child were to behave terribly in public, he would bring dishonor upon his father. You see, the father is the one who gave authority to the family and identity to the family. But principally, the role of the father was that of provider. He was the one who ensured that the family had all that it needed to survive. He provided for the family. And James says, every good gift and every perfect gift comes from above. It comes from the Father who is the provider of his people. He is a Father of lights and he is a Father of believers. And so we see then the reality of God's goodness. But notice that we see further in our passage the character of God's goodness. Not only is God the source of goodness, but now we see the character of his goodness. For James continues, Every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. James not only tells us the reality of God's goodness, he tells us the character of God's goodness. That God, by nature, is unchangeably good. God's goodness is unchanging. With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Having alluded to God as creator, specifically referring to him as father of lights, he now moves to contrast the character of God to the luminaries of the heavens. And while the major contrast between the luminaries in heaven and God is that these lights are marked by change and variation. When you look at the sun, you probably don't, most of us will never think that the sun changes. But scientists tell us that the sun does not just radiate light at the same intensity. It actually, the sun dims or becomes brighter. Now, with the natural eye, we cannot see that. But there is change in the heavenly bodies. James says, unlike the changes in the heavenly bodies, with God there is no variation in character. There is no waxing and waning, no becoming brighter or dimmer, that God is constant in character. With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. This Father of lights does not change like shifting shadows. There is no fluctuation or change in his character. Now, this must not be taken 
to mean that James believes that God is static in his being or that he is unresponsive and immobile. When James says that with God, the Father of light, there is no variation or shadow of turning, he is not teaching that God is immobile or God is incapable of responding. We know that God responds to men. That God changes in his response to the actions of men. For instance, if someone were to displease God or to, li- or, or to live sinfully, that person would, would, would find that God is displeased. A sinner who lives in sin, God is constantly displeased with the sinner. That every, every single day of his life, the man or woman who refuses to serve God, God is constantly 100% displeased with him. But when he comes to faith, when he repents of his sin and he believes, God also changes in his attitude to him. Can you imagine if God were unchanging in attitude, for instance? Whatever we do, God remains unmoved. If we live in sin, God doesn't mind, doesn't do anything, doesn't think anything about it. If we seek to please him, he's still unmoved. The great unmoved mover. No. James is not saying that God does not respond to men and the changes in men. What he's saying is that God, in terms of his character, is unchanging. God, in terms of his love or of his holiness, does not change. Whereas he may respond to men's sin unto their repentance, God's character cannot change. And you find that in Malachi 3 verse 6 where the Lord says, For I am the Lord. I do not change. That is in character, in will, and in purpose. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. He is unchanging in his moral and intellectual attributes. He is unchanging in his sovereign attributes of power and dominion. And particularly in our context, James has every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light with whom there is no shadow of turning. There is no variation or shadow of turning. It means that God does not change in his goodness. The heavenly bodies may vary, but God is 100% constant in his kindness, in his goodness. He never becomes evil. He never becomes mean and then goes back to being good. He's always, whether you wake up at 1 a.m. in the morning or you go to bed at 6, there is one steady flow of goodness that flows from God. It can never change. It was the way it was in the old days, and it is the way it is today. We will not be able to go to God and say to him, would you please give us bread? And somehow he changes and gives us a stone. We will not go to God and ask for fish, but he changes from being a good God and surprises us with a snake. 
God is infinitely and unchangeably good. We see the reality of his goodness. We see the character of his his goodness, that God is unchangeably good. But we now, in verse 18, see the evidence of God's goodness. For James says, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's gravitating from the general statement about the goodness of God to the specifics. He's going to give us a specific example of God's goodness. What James is saying, I have made it abundantly plain to you that God is good in character. And perhaps you're asking the question, where may I see the goodness of God? How does God show this unchanging goodness? Well, James says, I want to produce one bit of evidence that God is constantly good. And I want you to look at this evidence that is the free gift of the new birth. He says, if you want to see God's goodness, I want you to look at the new spiritual life, the new birth that he gives. Of his own free will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That's evidence of God's goodness. God does not send us temptation. He sends us good. And the good he sends us is the new birth. Now James depicts this as a begetting. Of his own will he brought us forth. And the term here begetting denotes a woman bringing forth a child. Of his own free will, he birthed us. This is, this is a language of regeneration. And when we speak of regeneration, we are speaking about that radical and supernatural transformation that occurs in the heart of man. It is, it is what Jesus describes as the new birth to Nicodemus. When he said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. Of his own free will, he brought us forth. He gave us new spiritual life. He gave us new hearts. He made us new creatures. And he did this supernaturally and mysteriously in the heart. This new life, this begetting, this quickening work of God is evidence of God's unchanging goodness to his people. Peter refers to this, this new birth, this begetting. In 1 Peter 3 verses 3 and 4, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ 
who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has begotten us. Anageno means to beget, to cause, to be born again. And so, James says, I have a definitive proof, a proof of God's unchanging goodness. He has begotten us again unto a living hope. He has caused us to be born again. He has brought us forth. Now, he highlights three facets of this new life that stems from the goodness of God. He's going to, he's going to actually enlarge upon this gift of new birth, of spiritual transformation that God has worked in them by his goodness. He tells them first then of the basis of this new birth. There it is in verse 8 at the beginning of the sentence. Of his own will, he brought us forth. Of his own will, the basis of this new birth. James traces the new birth to the sovereign will of God. That's the basis of this new birth. He acts with sovereign freedom, not because he was compelled. God did not look at us and say, you know, you know, I really don't want to do that. But that fellow is such an upstanding person, I've got to save him. He's just bowled over. He can't but help himself but save us. That's not how we are saved. What does the text say? It says, of his own will. Of his own will. Meaning that he saved us freely. And this is the language of the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us, to adoption of sons by Jesus Christ, to be holy and without blame before him in love. He has predestined us unto adoption of sons by Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did God choose us in eternity, Paul? Why did God set us apart to be his own? He did so according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his own will, according to his own good pleasure. In, la in simple language, God chose us in eternity because it pleased him to do so. He did so freely because of his sovereign will. And similarly, God begot us. God brought us forth. He made us brand new people. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. And yet the Lord quickened us, gave us life. Why? What's the basis? His sovereign will, his sovereign grace. In fact, the apostle tells us this. John in one in John chapter one, twelve and thirteen says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You see, those who believe in him 
are those who were born not through human instrumentality, but by the will of God. All he's teaching here is that the basis of our salvation and our regeneration is God's mercy and grace. In Titus 3, 4 to 7, this point is emphasized. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit whom he poured on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We were washed and regenerated, but God did so according to his mercy. He did so according to his own will. One writer says that God chose us and God saved us. And we were never given the opportunity to vote. There was no vote involved when God decided to save us. He did so because of his own will. James shows us then the means of our new birth. He shows us the basis. It comes from God's free will. And then he tells us the means. Notice, he goes on, of his own will, he brought us forth. But how did God give us this new life? How did he change our hearts? James says, by the word of truth. By the word of truth speaks of the means of the new birth. Now, in the passage in 1 Peter 1 verse 3, Peter attributes the new birth to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We were raised with Christ to newness of life because of Christ's resurrection. But James informs us that God begot us, brought us forth by the word of truth. That the new birth is the product of his word. It's the instrumental means of his word. Later on in chapter 1 of 1 Peter, the apostle will also confirm that we are brought to life, we are given new life through the word of God. And Peter puts it this way, he says, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. It is through that seed, through that word of God, that incorruptible and eternal word that we are brought to life. Now, when James says that the Lord brought us forth by the word of truth, he is thinking in terms of the powerful and the creative word of God. That is, the same word by which God called light out of darkness in the creation is the same word that God issues and brings us life. Just as God pronounced over the dry bones of Ezekiel, and just as he called them and told them, live, so God, in the powerful word of God, God spoke to our dead hearts and commanded us to live. And we lived. 
How did Jesus bring life to Lazarus? He spoke it. Lazarus, come forth. You see, the voice of God is powerful. It is energizing. It is dynamic. It is by his word that he called the universe into being. It is by his word that he calls a creation into being. And it is by his word he calls a new creation in us into existence. You see, this new birth comes from the powerful word of God. And this word of God comes down like rain from heaven. It goes where God has sent it, and it will not return void. This evening you may be unconverted, and the Spirit of God is pleased to pass by you. And as he passes by you, he casts his garment over you, and he says to you, live, and you will live. We are brought forth by the word of truth. If you are not saved, you must say to the Lord, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. And it may be that it may be that the God of glory is pleased to bring life and bring it abundantly. You've seen the basis of this new birth, God's own will. We've seen the means of the new birth by the word of truth. But we also note the purpose of the new birth. For what reason? For what reason does this good God give us the gift of the new birth? Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. And here it is. That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Here is the purpose of the new birth. The first fruit in Israel refers to the first part of the harvest, the best part of the harvest. That part of the harvest was devoted to God, that was given as a tithe, as a gift to God. And the first part of the harvest was a harbinger. It was there to tell you that there is more to come. It was the first installment of the harvest given to God. And God has brought us forth that we might be the first fruits, that we might be the initial installment of a greater harvest. God has worked in the Apostle Paul and worked in us as the indicator that he will have a great harvest of souls. You see, he saves you and he saves me because he's saying to the world, there will be a greater harvest. And he will be in the business of saving men and saving women. You are indeed the pilot work of God. You are the creative work of God. And it signifies that you are the down payment, the initial deposit of a greater harvest to come. That's God's purpose. Because God is intended to have a people for his glory. And James says, 
the God in whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, has brought us forth to be a kind of first fruit, the initial installment of a harvest, of a greater harvest of conversion. Listen, there is going to be in glory the church of Jesus Christ that is beyond number. God's people will be a vast people in heaven. And we are the first fruits for God's glory. May we praise the Lord because he does not do us evil, but he does, he does good to us. He gives us good gifts. God is deserving of praise and of honor and of love because of his goodness. You look at life and you look at what God has done, you must conclude, whatever the trials may be in life, that God has been extremely good. That even this day, God has demonstrated his goodness. You know why? Because you're still able to hear my voice. I understand that for many, God can never do anything good. Whatever God does is wrong. You know, I heard the story of, or read the story of a group of soldiers who did something bad and they were called up by their commanding officer and they were going to be rebuked and punished. And one fellow went in to the commanding officer who, who in his younger days was a boxer. And he went in and he came out and when he came out from the commanding officer, he met a friend and the friend said, how did he go? And he said, well, he gave me two choices. He said to me, you have a choice of going three rounds with me in the ring or seven days in jail. And so the fellow told his friend and I decided to take the seven days in jail. But the commanding officer wasn't pleased. He said, you coward. You won't even fight. Take 14 days in jail. Well, the fellow who heard this figured out how to get around punishment. He goes into his commanding officer and he places the same two choices before him. Three rounds in the ring with me or seven days in jail. Which do you choose? And the soldier said, I will take three rounds with you. The commanding officer was aghast, terribly upset. So you want to beat up an old man, don't you, do you? Take 14 days. Couldn't be pleased. Couldn't be pleased. And there are those in this world, whatever God does is never good enough. If he blesses them with job and family and food and health, it's never good enough. If he sends them trials, then God is certainly not good. Whatever he does is never good enough. But God is good. And God is kind. God makes provision for us. He's given us this gift of spiritual life. He's changed us. 
He's made us his children. And whatever else we think we have been denied, if we have been given heaven, and if we have been given God himself, we have been given everything that we need. But more than that, if you really want to know the goodness of God, God has given us his greatest gift, his son, the Lord Jesus. And I would want to suggest to you that even if you don't have a lot of money in the bank, that if you have Jesus, you have everything that God can ever give you. You have heaven's best. God is good and God is good all the time. He gives the greatest of gifts. In Jesus Christ's son who came to this world and carried our sins to the cross and delivered us from an awful destiny. My friends, you must trust in the unchangeable goodness of God. For in him there is no variation nor shadow of turning. The Lord will not turn from you. He will not take his goodness away. He will supply our needs according to his riches in glory. He will supply us. He will do us good. Even when we think that there is no good to come. When every door you press and every route you take seem to be blocked. God will still do you good. The psalmist speaks in Psalm 27 of an army that had encamped around him. Men had come upon him, he said, to eat up his flesh. But this psalmist, even though the situation was in his own eyes completely desperate, he still retained his belief and faith in the goodness of God. He says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. I have enemies, he says, and I cannot even count them. They are about to devour me, but I believe that I will see the goodness of God. Because fundamentally the psalmist knew that deep down, God is good. And God rescued him. And God delivered him. We must praise God for his goodness. We must trust him and trust his goodness. When we go to God, we must believe in him that he is good. When you pray, you must believe that you are praying to a good God. You must believe and not be a doubter unstable in all your ways. And finally, because God is good... You must imitate the goodness of the Lord. And Paul tells the Romans, he says, that they, may, they must cleave. They must cleave to what is good. We must then, because our Father is good, imitate him. We must do good to others in the power of the Spirit of God. We must love our enemies and those who curse us and abuse us, we must do good to them. God does good to the evil. And God does good to all men. In Galatians he says, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are the household of faith. The writer of Hebrews 
puts it thus, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For with such sacrifice, God is pleased. They are pleasing to God. May God help us that as we go through this life, we may cleave to this, this monumental fact that God is good and that God does good. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Amen.